Section three of the Science History of the Universe, Volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Park. The Science History of the Universe, Volume six, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler, Zoology, Chapter three: The Lower Invertebrates. Part One. From the earliest times, when sponges were believed to be but solidification of the foam of the sea, they have been an element of curiosity to men. They have been declared to be animal, to be vegetable, and to be mineral. Ancient naturalists quarrelled over the question whether they could move or no, and Aristotle's decision that they were animal because they shrank when moved from their rock bases provoked a storm of dissent. Even so keen an observer as Lamarck believed the apertures on the surface of a sponge to be the mouths of small cells inhabited by polyps, and he expended no little wonder over the question why a polyp never was to be found in his cell. Paisonel, on the other hand, declared that sponges were created by a giant sea worm and held that the sponge itself was mere nidus and excretion. It is now known, however, that the ordinary sponge of bathtub importance is the horny skeleton of one of the simplest kinds of animals. In life, this horny framework is lined with an inner and outer layer of cells. It is fast to a rock or coral block. Its movements consist only in inducing a current of water through the pores by means of tiny whip lashes attached to inner cells, and by a certain amount of contraction and expansion of the entrances to the pores. The cells absorb and digest any food matter that is brought by the currents of water passing through the pores. Most of the growth is by budding. Bisexual reproduction does occur, however, alternately with the giving off of gemmules or independent buds. These gemmules, produced in the autumn, develop into male and female forms, and the ova from the one, fertilized by spermatozoa from the other, give rise to a summer generation of sponges, which in turn produce gemmules. This alternation of generations is not uncommon among lower animals. There is a great variety of sponges, some with calcareous skeleton, others with horny or siliceous skeletons. They are nearly all marine, and the best-known kinds are tropical. The commercial sponges, of which the best come from the Mediterranean and Indian seas, are found in clear water at moderate depths. The fishermen locate them by looking through a glass-bottomed bucket. And pull them up with a pair of hooks on the end of a long pole. They are left upon the shore to die and decompose, and then washed and bleached. Among the siliceous sponges, some, like the Venus flower basket, are exquisitely beautiful in the form and structure of the skeleton. These live at great depths and are obtained by dredging. Fossil sponges are found in the most ancient rocks. Professor Caillou has discovered the spicules of siliceous sponges in the Archean rocks of Brittany, which would make them the oldest fossils known, and they are common in the oldest fossiliferous formations of other parts of the world. So that the testimony of the rocks appears to confirm what would be expected: that the sponges are the most ancient, as they are the simplest of the metazoa or many-celled organisms. The corals and sea anemones, hydroids and jellyfish, grouped under an order Slenterata, are but little less simple in form. In all these animals, the structure consists simply of a body cavity with a fringe of tentacles around the edge. 
The tentacles are stinging and sensitive cells which serve to capture food. The body cavity is lined with digestive cells which serve to digest it and is sometimes partially divided up by partitions extending inward from the outer wall. And the outer layer of cells may secrete a calcareous shell which serves as protection. The jellyfish are free-swimming organisms, the hydroids and sea anemones are fixed to the bottom, and the corals are great colonies of individuals which secrete a calcareous shell. The translucent milky umbrella-like disc of the jellyfish, lazily opening and closing as it floats along the tide, is familiar to everyone. Beneath the disc hangs a circle of long tentacles, stinging cells which serve to kill or paralyze small fishes or other minute animals that may come in contact with them and are fluted into the body cavity by a current of water produced by the lashing of cilia or rib cells in the same way as in sponges. Many jellyfish can inflict a sting sufficient to cause severe pain to the incautious hand which touches them. The structure of the stinging tentacles is very curious. A.G. Mayer in his Seashore Life describes them as follows. The long, flexible tentacles arise from the side of the bell near the rim. The tentacles are covered with wart-like clusters of minute thread cells, each containing a coiled tube which can be turned inside out as you might do with the finger of a glove. If the tentacles come in contact with a small fish or crustacean, these little stinging threads are instantly discharged and on account of their minute size they penetrate the skin of the prey, carrying with them a poison, believed to be forming acid, which quickly paralyzes the victim. The jellyfish produces eggs, which, however, do not develop directly into free-swimming jellyfish, but into fixed hydroids, and these in turn bud off jellyfish. This is another example of alternate generations. Hydroids differ from jellyfish in being fixed to the bottom. They are like little vases, the lip lined with stinging tentacles, and many of them develop by budding into compound colonies. Many of the jellyfish are strongly phosphorescent at night, and swarms of them floating in the water make a very brilliant display when stirred up by a boat passing through or by the breaking of waves upon the shore. It may seem strange that such an animal as a jellyfish should leave any traces of its presence in the rocks. Nevertheless, under certain favorable circumstances, they may be buried in the sand and converted into siliceous casts without much loss of shape, and these fossil casts, known as star cobbles, are found in the most ancient rocks of the Cambrian period in Alabama and elsewhere. So it appears that jellyfish were among the inhabitants of the seas at the dawn of recorded geological history. A sea anemone, says Mayer, is a barrel-shaped animal. The bottom of the barrel is fastened to some rock or other firm anchorage, while the upper end bears a slit-like mouth which is encircled by a fringe of tentacles. The mouth leads into a simple tube-like throat which is bound to the inner sides of the barrel by means of radiating partitions. The throat tube is, however, only about one-half as long as the height of the barrel, so that the radial partitions in the lower half of the barrel cavity do not meet at the center, but leave an open space which is the stomach of the anemone. Sea anemones are among the most attractive of marine animals, beautiful both in form and color. They vary in size from that of a pin's head to several feet across, and they live at all depths and in a great variety of situations. 
A coral polyp is only a sea anemone which deposits a plate of lime salt at the base of its barrel-like body and between the radial partitions of the stomach cavity. These lime salts form a stony skeleton or substance which we commonly call coral. It is well to remember that the coral animals are not insects, but are merely sea anemones which form stony skeletons. Although sea anemones and coral polyps resemble beautiful flowers when fully expanded, they quickly contract into a mere dome-shaped mass when disturbed. In this way, the coral polyps are protected by withdrawing into their stony cup-shaped bases. The coral polyps are glassy white and translucent, and have each from 18 to 24 long tapering tentacles, which end in a white knob and are speckled over with white warts. These are the stinging organs which enable the coral to capture its prey of small marine animals. When fully expanded, the polyps are about one-eighth of an inch wide and three-eighths high, but when disturbed, they suddenly contract so as to become practically invisible. The colony starts with a single polyp, but soon others bud out from its base, and the cluster increases by further budding from the bases of the older polyps until it may be several inches in diameter. The fleshy coral is found from the eastern end of Long Island to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It is rarely seen in shallow water, but is common upon rocks at depths greater than 20 feet. When first brought up from the bottom, it appears as an ugly, tough, gelatinous mess covered with dull, yellowish-pink, finger-shaped processes. If placed in water, however, the whole mess soon appears studded with beautiful star-shaped polyps, which expand so as to give the appearance of a stump covered with delicate pink flowers. Each of these polyps has a terminal mouth surrounded by eight tentacles, the sides of which are bordered with rays giving a feathery appearance. The whole colony of polyps develops through constant budding from the sides and bases of the older parts of the colony. Nothing is more strangely beautiful than these coral reefs where the rich purple sea fans and the chocolate sea whips wave gracefully to the surges in the crystal depths while brilliant fishes glistening in green, blue, purple, and yellow glide in and out among the shadows of the coral caverns. The precious coral of the Mediterranean is allied to the sea whips. Its polyps are brilliant white and have each eight feathered tentacles, while the internal axis of the colony is red and stony. The stony corals, especially the reef-building kinds, have played an important part in the building up of the continents. They flourish in a warm temperature and clear water. In the West Indies, the Red Sea and Indian Ocean, the northeast coast of Australia, and especially in the islands of the Pacific, coral reefs today are building out the land on a gigantic scale and their influence has been even more important at times in the past history of the earth. The lower part of the peninsula of Florida consists of a succession of reefs built out one after another, the latest being the Florida Keys. The outer border of the reef is alive and growing, the fragments broken off by the waves from above, filling up the interstices between the growing corals and slowly extending the bank seaward. The lime extracted by the little coral polyps from the seawater and built up into solid limestone reefs would in the course of time exhaust the entire supply of lime salts in the ocean, 
were it not continually recruited by the lime dissolved from limestones on land by the rain, or liberated in the decay of other rocks. This lime is brought down by the rivers in the form of a soluble bicarbonate, and in extracting it from the sea water, the corals and other lime-secreting organisms set free a certain amount of carbonic acid gas, which again is not without effect upon the climate. Starfish, sea urchins, sea lilies, and sea cucumbers, forming the order of echinodermata, says Mayer, are also called radiates because in the form of their bodies and arrangement of their organs, they usually display five rays. For example, most starfishes have five equally developed arms, 72 degrees apart, recalling the rays of a conventional star. In the echinoderms, the skin usually contains a skeleton composed of calcareous plates of definite shapes, all hinged together in an orderly manner so as to make a veritable armor which gives rigidity to the body and protects the soft organs of the interior. In the living starfish, one will see hundreds of little tubular feet which arise from the grooves on the lower side of the arms. When the starfish is turned over upon its back, these feet stretch out to a remarkable length and wave about, seeking to fasten upon something in order to right the animal. It is then we may see that each of these feet is a hollow tube, ending in a cup-shaped sucker. Similar tube feet will be seen in five double lines along the sides of the sea urchins. The mouth of the starfish is at the center of the lower surface. On the upper side, and a little away from the center between two arms, one will see a spongy-looking area. This is called the madreporic plate, and is the sieve-like entrance to the water tubes of the starfish, which extend down the arms and give rise to little bladder-like vessels, one above each tube foot. The contractions of these little bladders cause the tube feet to elongate by pressing water out into their cavities. The upper surfaces of most of the starfishes are covered with spines, but these are much better developed in the sea urchins, where in addition to spines are found cautious pincers mounted upon rods, which are used to remove any injurious foreign substance that may fall upon the body of the urchins. The sea cucumbers, or holothuria, are worm-like in appearance, but are nevertheless closely related to starfishes and sea urchins. They have no spines and their skeleton is often reduced to minute anchor-shaped spicules within the skin. The mouth is at one end of the worm-shaped body and is surrounded by feathered or branching tentacles. In some species, there are five double rows of tube feet down the sides of the body, but in others, these are absent. When disturbed, sea cucumbers have the curious habit of casting out their viscera and afterward regenerating them. They are sluggish creatures and either live within the sand or under rocks or crawl slowly over the bottom, feeding upon minute organisms that are contained in the sand or mud which they swallow. Sea urchins or echini may be compared to starfishes without arms. They are usually provided with a skeleton made for the most part of six-sided plates fused or rigidly joined together. They have five sharp-edged teeth with which they gnaw off minute seaweeds from the rocks. Some species can even gnaw away the rock itself, and in many parts of the world, the sea urchins have literally honeycombed the rocks. Indeed, 
A sea urchin is often found living in a cavity whose opening is too small to allow of the animal's escape. The common sea urchin of Europe is sold in the markets during the season when it is full of eggs. The sea lilies, or crinoidea, may be compared to a starfish mounted upon a long stem which arises from the middle of its back and anchors it to the bottom of the sea. The mouth is turned upward and is surrounded by branching arms which sweep gracefully to and fro in search of prey. The echinoderms live only in salt water, but they are found at all depths and in all oceans, from the tropics to the poles. The vast majority crawl over the bottom, but at least one holothurian swims through the water and was at first mistaken for a jellyfish. Most of them cast their eggs out into the water, and the larvae develop bands of swimming cilia, which enable them to swim about for a considerable time. Suddenly, the body of the echinoderm begins to develop with the larva. Most of the old larval body is absorbed or cast off. Starfishes feed upon almost any kind of mollusk, but will also devour barnacles, worms, and occasionally sea urchins, or even the young of their own species. It is estimated that in one year, starfishes destroyed $631,500 worth of oysters on the beds of Connecticut alone. In the mode of feeding, the starfish folds its arms over the clam or oyster, and hundreds of the sucker-like tube feet fasten themselves to the valves of the shell, so that finally the mollusk yields to the constant pull of the starfish and the shell gapes open. Then the starfish turns its stomach inside out and engulfs the mollusk. It has been found by experiment that a large starfish can exert a steady pull of over two and one-half pounds, and that this is sufficient in time to open the valves of the clam or mussel. The eggs of the starfish are discharged into the water in greatest abundance during the last three weeks of June, although they are also to be found throughout the summer and occasionally even in winter. These eggs are soon developed into little transparent larvae covered with tortuous lines of waving cilia and provided with long flexible tubercles. They swim slowly about near the surface and feed upon minute organisms until they grow to be about one-eighth of an inch long. Then the upper and lower halves of the star begin to develop upon each side of the stomach, and in a few hours all of the anterior part of the larva and the tubercles are absorbed, and only a minute star about as large as a pin's head is seen upon the bottom of the ocean. Myriads of these little stars settle upon seaweeds and eelgrass and begin at once to devour the young clams which also begin life in the same places. Professor Mead found that one of these little stars devoured over 50 young clams in six days. The starfishes grew rapidly, and in one year they may have arms two and a half inches long and be ready to spawn. Besides the common five-pointed starfish, there are many other more or less familiar. The serpent stars have long, slender, flexible arms and are much more active. In the basket stars, the arms are branched and forked into a multitude of slender interlaced tips, upon which the animal moves about with the body lifted above the ground. 
The prickly sea urchins abound along rocky coasts. Along the sandy shores, they are replaced by the sand dollar, flattened out into a thin plate covered with minute brown spines. Sea cucumbers are familiar to everyone who has explored the tide pools of rocky coasts at low water, but other kinds are common on sandy, muddy, or gravelly beaches, living just below low water mark. In China, a species of sea cucumber is prepared and eaten as a delicacy. Sea lilies or crinoids are now rare and confined to deep water, but in the early periods of geologic time, they were very abundant and varied. Shore forms as well as deep water species. The oldest of them, dating back to the Cambrian period, suggests a sea urchin which has lost its spines and is mounted upon a jointed stalk. In the crinoids proper, the body has developed branching arms which wave in a feathery plume above it. The fossil crinoids or stone lilies are sometimes preserved in wonderful perfection in the Paleozoic limestones. And are one of the most attractive of fossils. Great numbers of them have been obtained in the limestones of Crossfordsville, Indiana, and elsewhere in the United States. End of section three. Recording by Lucy Park.